0: Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Investing from A to Z podcast. I'm your host, Steph Bodrini. This podcast is for everyone who wants to be part of our real estate family and learn commercial real estate investing from A to Z. I'll be sharing with you tips for real estate investing while being mentored by a few people with several years of experience so that you and I can make the least amount of mistakes as possible and succeed a lot faster. My goal is to keep things very straightforward because I value your time and you are here to learn. With that, in the last episode we learned how to go about purchasing your first property, what are some of the things that are important for you to look at, and in this episode, we are interviewing Chris Ressa. He is the Chief Operating Officer at DLC Management Corporation. He oversees DLC's $2.5 billion asset portfolio and is responsible for all property-level operations such as leasing, property management, construction, and marketing. We're going to understand what is happening in the retail space and how retail investors are preparing to deal with things that are happening right now. Here we go. Chris, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm looking forward to learning more about what is happening in the retail space. But first, why don't you tell us a little bit about you?
1: Great, so first and foremost, I am a lucky husband and a uh, lucky father of two. I have a three-year-old daughter a soon-to-be two-year-old son. He turns two in two days. And I've been married for, we just celebrated our fifth anniversary this year. I live in Northern New Jersey in a town called Kinelon, New Jersey. So I live in the the woods on a mountain and on a lake. I'm 45 minutes from Manhattan, 45 minutes from my office, but I I live in the woods. So in 10 minutes, I can't get anywhere, which I like. (laughs) Day-to-day, I'm the chief operating officer at DLC. We are an owner and operator of commercial real estate. We buy and hold or buy and flip at times, in particular, open air retail shopping centers. One of the interesting things about us is we are an owner operator. We don't third party anything. Uh, So we don't hire property management. We don't hire external leasing. We don't hire external construction. We are completely vertically integrated and we do that all in-house. And for us, our model is we leverage the expertise of our platform to add value to assets. So we're a people first company, assets second. We believe if we build a best in class team and we treat them right, they will in turn take care of the properties. And so we found that that model works for us. And we've had success in doing that. And so my role, there's three partners, the CEO, who's the majority. He started the company in 1991. That's Adam Ifshin, myself and Jonathan Wigser, who is our chief investment officer. And then we have a whole executive team with our general counsel and head of development and our CFO. You can look at our company kind of split into what we'll call the operations and then what we'll call the financial side. So The operation side and the part that I oversee is about 50 people. It's the leasing, property management, construction, and marketing. And then my counterpart oversees our acquisitions, dispositions, debt and equity markets, our underwriting team, and obviously where there's a lot of interplay between us and we have to work together often and frequently, so...
0: Let's move into what's going on in the retail space.
1: In my opinion, I think retail is the most complex and therefore the most rewarding commercial real estate asset class. And I think it's that because retail is not simply class A, B, and C. There, if you look, there are more public REITs in retail than there are any other asset class in commercial real estate and that's because all the different types of product lines operate so differently than each other and you might have a class a office building class b class c and that's kind of really the nuts and bolts of it in retail it's you have enclosed malls outlet centers power centers grocery anchored centers freestanding Mm -hmm. buildings unanchored strip centers lifestyle centers mixed-use developments And all these are like the same industry, but different businesses. Sure. And so I think the first thing I would say is there are certain places that are on fire and doing really well. And there are certain places that are challenged. I think that right now the most challenged is the enclosed mall. And we like to say we're in the same industry, but a different business. And if you think about it in an enclosed mall, most of my tenants today don't have a lot of exposure. They don't operate in a in a mall. We own either grocery anchored or what we would call power centers, a Walmart anchored or Target anchored center with a TJ Maxx home goods, a McDonald's out on a pad in the parking lot. And that's what I mean when I say power center. If you think about who the tenants are in those centers, they're very different than, in those open air strip centers, they're very different than the tenants you see in the enclosed mall. The enclosed mall was a destinational Retail fashion oriented shopping venue that's shifted, you know, it used to be driven by the department stores. And if you think about a department store, so much of it is apparel and soft goods. And that's not what a lot of the open air strip centers are today. They're either grocery or general merchandise merchandisers with a lot of what the government deemed as essential retail during the pandemic. And so I think the enclosed mall is going through a massive transformation, compounded what's going on with the pandemic because it's enclosed. Uh, It was going on a massive transformation Mm pre-pandemic. And I think the open air is going through some transformation, but there's a lot of positive transformation that's going on in the open air world such as? I think a lot of the retailers that go in open air projects are still growing and doing exceedingly well. If you think about the numbers that Walmart, Target, Costco, Home Depot, Lowe's, Dollar Tree, all these companies reported over the last couple quarters, they've done exceedingly well because of their price points and their experiences. It's more challenging to replicate online. And They've incorporated this digital experience. So I often say, I don't know one retailer that was put out of business strictly because of competition online. I can't name one. And and today, most of the retailers have to have an omni-channel presence. If you look at a lot of the digitally native brands who have been really successful, they've all opened up a significant amount of brick and mortar locations like Warby Parker and Untucket. Now those locations are typically in destinational A malls, but nonetheless, I, there's this convergence between online and physical retail. Today, still 84-85% of all retail is done shopped in a store. And if it's not shopped in a store, a lot of it is fulfilled by the store via BOPUS, which is buy online, pickup up in store. And I don't see that changing especially in the value retail world. I don't know how you get to a place where it's economical for most retailers to deliver products to your house at a price point that is affordable to most Americans, right? It's a lot cheaper to deliver 4000 products to one store and have you go to the store than it is to have 4000 products delivered separately to a household, you know. I don't know how Dollar Tree could give you the same pay a dollar for the product and it be shipped to your home. And so I think the the myth out there is that e-commerce is killing physical retail. I think a lot of e-commerce has made physical retail stronger, the strong stronger. And I think that a lot of physical retailers are doing uh, more e-commerce now and a lot of e-commerce is starting to enter physical.
0: And so how are the retail investors preparing to deal with everything that is happening right now with COVID?
1: I think there's a couple things going on. From an operations perspective, there is definitely a lot of blocking and tackling going on because there's headline news that you're going to have a churn of this upcoming vacancy that's going to be happening forced by COVID. Right. Right. Today I would say it feels like, you know, you have the national tenant bankruptcy. In 2019, though, the national tenant bankruptcy, 73% of all store closures were wrapped up in 16 different brands. The headline news skews it like it's all dying, but it really was just a certain amount of retailers. Mm-hmm. And so I think the first thing is people are dealing with what's going on with rent deferrals and rent modifications and lease modifications, and they're blocking and tackling and dealing with their existing tenant base. They are trying to you know, continue to lease space. We've been leasing space through the pandemic. We took a former Kmart box. We got back in December of 2019. We signed a lease with Lidl, who's a grocery store. So we turned a non-grocery anchored center into grocery anchored, which hopefully lowers cap rate. We brought in Ollie's Bargain Outlet, another public company, and we brought in Harbor Freight Tools, all at which were you know at higher rents than Kmart was paying. We've executed on that through the pandemic. And that's just one example. That's awesome. Yeah. The big piece of it is less specific to retail. I think more about commercial real estate, which is one, I think there's a bid ask problem in the marketplace in all commercial real estate where sellers aren't prepared to sacrifice on price yet. And buyers are looking for COVID pricing. And I think that's in all asset classes. Retail is no different. And then I think mm-hmm. the debt markets are a little challenged because lenders are trying to understand how to look at rent rolls. We feel pretty confident in our rent rolls and in the durability of those cash flows based on the creditworthiness of the tenant mix and what we've seen in rent payments. But I think that's got to open up a little bit more. Those are the biggest things. On the operation side, it's blocking and tackling on dealing with all the lease modifications, rent modifications that might be going on. It is continuing to lease vacant space. And for us, you know, less about the investment, it's dealing with how to operate a property in a post-COVID world. We've now installed buy online, pick up and store at all our centers. We've got new protocols in place for cleaning and sanitizing and things like that. And then the other piece is the bid ask on the buyer seller and the debt market, meaning that there's a bid ask difference, right? The buyers are looking for COVID pricing and sellers. Those are the things investors are thinking about right now.
0: I'm very curious to hear what kinds of things retail property owners are looking at repurposing retail space for.
1: What I would say is there's a lot to come on this. I, You know, I think the first thing is in the... Pre pandemic, what you were seeing was this buzzword, which was experiential retailing, which was theater and entertainment venues. But they were really going to like iconic, destinational retail properties, where that's not the everyday retail property in America. The everyday retail property is where someone goes and gets their nails done and picks up their groceries and grabs a slice of pizza and whatnot. And I I don't know that there's going to be a use transformation. I think you're going to see different names on the doors in some properties, and some you'll see the same. If you take the example of what I talked about in Frederick, Maryland, we took a Kmart, which wasn't a thriving retailer. We brought in one of the fastest growing grocery chains in America, Lidl. Uh, We brought in a general merchandiser, Ollie's Bargain Outlet, and a home improvement retailer. That could have been the lineup that you would see in a project five years ago, and no different today, just because Kmart got out of the way. I think that there's obviously going to be repurposing. You see a lot of the enclosed mall operators talking about, you know, maybe making a deal with Amazon distribution stuff. There's going to be some of that mixed use stuff. I don't know that that's at scale. People say we're overstored in America, and I ask the question, why? Why are we overstored? The typical answer is, the square footage per capita in America, it's so much higher than all these other countries. And then I ask, well, why does that make us overstored? stored? And I would say there's 464,000 stores in America. 84% of the retail sales in America are done at 464,000 stores. There are 1.8 million online retailers in the US. And so you have 16% of shopping done at 1.8 million Online stores and eighty-four percent done at four hundred sixty-four thousand. And so, what that tells me is we have some retailers that aren't relevant anymore, and we need other retailers. But I don't know that that tells me that retail needs to be repurposed everywhere. I think there's some enclosed malls where the market is shifted, and those could be some self-storage and industrial and multifamily added. But at scale, I don't automatically go to all retail needs to be repurposed. There's some, and what you're seeing is some mixed use. We have a shopping center where the grocery store didn't work anymore. We turned that into a trade school in Connecticut. We have other shopping centers that we have a lot of land that we own, and we're looking to add multifamily and integrate that into the retail. We've done some hospital healthcare system deals where we've brought in large healthcare facilities and brought in a medical component because healthcare is trying to get closer to the consumer, which is typically retail properties. And they're trying to get away from bringing you to the hospital because it's more costly. And so they're trying to get closer to the consumer, which typically means retail properties. So that's an opportunity as well for retail investors is what percentage of the property could be healthcare in any one market. And so that's kind of how I look at repurpose.
0: Is your group actively looking for new properties at this point in time? Or,
1: you know, we're trying to get to what we would call enterprise scale today. We're larger than some public REITs, we're smaller than most, but we want to get bigger. And so we're looking to buy. The transaction volume in the United States has been pretty low up until now, with the exception of the triple net lease freestanding market. And so when do things start to open up? And there'll probably be opportunities coming into 2021, we're underwriting and looking at opportunities. And we are in growth mode to the extent you can be in this time.
0: I'm very curious how you guys are projecting revenues. If you're looking at properties right now, are you projecting with a certain additional vacancy in mind?
1: First off, we buy value-added real estate. And so Typically, if you're you know buying on a capitalized rate, the vacancy is not factored into that purchase price. The second thing that I think is we're taking our in-house retail expertise and the way we're looking at it is we're trying to assign a probability to the durability of the cash flow stream. I think that's the piece, which is I think when you're investing in retail properties, that's probably a key piece, right? If you think about any retailer, whomever it is, whether it's Walmart or TJ Maxx or Starbucks, how successful is this location? How does that location fit into their grander plans? What do you expect Mm -hmm. will happen when they come up for renewal? Will they stay? Will they leave the market? Will they want to move down the road? And those are the things that I think our in-house team has the expertise to evaluate and make pretty good assumptions around. And that's the type of things we're looking at. If the question is like, what has changed? It's really some of the tenants are not as durable as maybe they were previously. And some are now more durable.
0: Sure. Thank you for sharing what's going on with you guys. Is there anything else that you think is important for our audience to know?
1: When you see about like repurposing, you're going to see some massive transformation in the enclosed malls, you're going to see some of the similar tenants who have gotten stronger through the pandemic in your open air formats. I think that's one of the punchlines I would leave. The other thing that I think is important is that when you're looking at retail in America, I think that what's unique about retail versus you know some other asset classes you might buy a an A office building but maybe it doesn't have any corporate enterprise tenants in it if you look at shopping centers across America the majority of the income stream is fortune 500 companies you know in the late 90s early 2000s that was the allure of a lot of retail i don't know that that has changed all that much other than what is your future view on that specific company
0: Plus the fact that they said, we're not going to pay rent and we don't care during the pandemic.
1: That's definitely a piece. What I would say definitely it felt like in the retail space that was more challenging than other asset classes. But I think that on average between April and now, if you average them all out, we collected, I think north of 85% of the rent. Oh, wow. Yeah. And here's the difference. Takes a team, a lot of that's done because we've made hundreds of deals with tenants. And you have to have the team to be able to go through and cut those deals. So Mm -hmm. collecting the rent is not passive today. You have to work because you typically have to cut a deal. But I would say that tenants are paying rent. I think if you're looking for mailbox money in today's time, tough asset class, but they're paying. And and there's a lot of things, right? Like we came to find out like during the pandemic, there was this whole thing on defaulting national retailers. Well, there was a lot of retailers that defaulted on their rent. And then when you sent them a default notice, they cured. One of the reasons they cured is because some of these public companies had other lenders and covenants that if they had been in default on their rent, then they were default on their loan. So, they might, to preserve cash flow, they might not pay the rent, wait for the default notice. Once the default notice comes, they cured. Well, that mm-hmm. process might take 30 days, but you need to be active in that pursuit of that rent collection.
0: Absolutely. And I have seen that with all the highly successful people, they were immediately reaching out to tenants, no matter in which asset class they were in. So that's a very good point.
1: Yeah. We had a three pillar approach through the pandemic. We called it the eights. Communicate, accommodate, and mitigate. So we needed to do whatever we could to mitigate the virus and sanitize, clean our properties, make them safe environments to shop. We needed to accommodate and work with our tenants in places where we could and try to cut deals. And then we needed to communicate and continue open the lines of communication. And if there's anything that's positive that's happened through the pandemic is with our tenants and our lenders and everybody, we've opened up the lines of communication from a work from home environment more than they've ever been.
0: Very cool, Chris. How can our listeners get in touch with you?
1: You can find me on LinkedIn, follow hashtag Ressa on real estate, that's R-E-S-S-A. Or you can, we have a podcast that talks about retail deals that have gotten done called Retail Retold.
0: Chris, thank you so much for sharing what is going on in your world so openly. I really appreciate it. Thank you. If you haven't already, make sure to join our Facebook group at facebook.com groups slash Monte Carlo REI. The link is also under show notes, and I will see you next time.